Welcome to the New Books Network. Think about it. Deep conversations with Uli Bear on big ideas and great books. I'm very happy to welcome a special guest today, Anne Fernald, who is Professor of English and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Fordham University. First of all, Anne, thank you for joining me on Think About It. I'm so happy to be here. And welcome back to our listeners. I just want to remind people, you can find the Think About It podcast wherever you find your podcasts. It's also hosted at the New Books Network website, which is one way to get it or anywhere else. And we announce new episodes on Instagram and Think About It podcast. I'm also on Twitter. Uh, Uli Bear is on Twitter. And are you on Twitter or Instagram? I am. I'm on both. Um, and my name in both places is Fernham. So F-E-R-N-H-A-M. Which it's, is a reference to? Uh, it's the town where Virginia Woolf gets lost, where Virginia Woolf's narrator gets lost in a room of one's own. Oh. And so it's a place where she loses her way while she's trying to think. But it's also a portmanteau of my name, Fernald, and where I teach, Fordham. Oh, nice. So that's my So that's where you found, social your, you found your home. Exactly. Great. So Anne is a professor, as you just said, at Fordham University in New York City. We're actually sitting in a studio in New York City here. Um, uh, so I'm really happy to have you here. Uh, she's the editor of the Cambridge University Press um, edition of Mrs. Dalloway and the Norton Critical Edition of Mrs. Dalloway, which has an introduction and critical apparatus, commentary, etc. You've also written a book, Virginia Woolf, Feminism and the Reader, where you make this link between Virginia Woolf's feminism and her reading practice and the kind of reading she's done. It's a really beautiful book, I think. So I, that's the first book I knew, actually. And then I reread your Norton edition now. And then many other articles on feminism, wolf, and literature. And we went to school together, actually. Yes, that's right. A long time ago. A long time ago at Yale <laughs> University. Um, and we have somebody else here today. Natasha, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, hello. Yeah, I'm actually just here because Mr. Dalloway is my favorite book. And he knows that. So he invited me to sit in. But I'm an undergrad at NYU studying. Who's going to work uh, on the podcast and at Warbler Press, where I also did an edition, like many people, of Mrs. Dalloway. So I thought we could start maybe, Anne, uh, by you telling me when you first encountered Mrs. Dalloway, which is such a key text for so many people. For Natasha, that's actually how we connected, because it's your favorite book. Absolutely, and yes. It's the reason I decided to study English. So if you could start us out how you got into uh, this book, maybe, and then I have a question about the two titles, The Hours and Mrs. Dalloway, as sure. maybe an opening. Yeah, that's great. So I've, I avoided Wolf all through undergrad, and uh, I avoided her because she was my grandmother's favorite writer, and I had a very mean grandmother. And so as a kind of stance against my mean grandmother who was pressuring me to major in English and pressuring me to be really smart. I was like, well, I'm not reading that lady that you love. And then when I got to graduate school, there was a class on Virginia Woolf and Gertrude Stein. And I realized that if I wanted to study modern British literature, I couldn't avoid the, the most important woman in the, in the canon. And I read Mrs. Dalloway and I just fell in love with it. It just was an absolute favorite. It's not, 
the most accessible of her books in some ways. It's a deliberately off-putting topic. I mean, Wolf is setting herself a hard task. I'm going to make you be interested in a shallow 52-year-old lady Mm -hmm. who's married and throwing a party. And it's kind of like, I dare you to find this woman interesting. And, but the sentences are so gorgeous and... I just couldn't get enough of them. It was like drinking the this beautiful glass of water that I'd always wanted. You know, it just it it I couldn't get enough of it. Yeah, it's, I reread it recently, and I read it several times, and I also felt I was kind of intoxicated by what's going on and how many things are in these sentences. And I also loved certain things that she uses two semicolons in a row. And I'm thinking, oh my God, how liberating. Yes. She does all these things where you think, you're not supposed to do that as a British writer. And she does. It's things that I think the prose itself is so energetic from within. There's something that happens. And she has complete control, but it, it has an energy that I felt I hadn't really felt in other books in a long time when I reread it just right now. And there's a, one of the things I learned when I was editing it is how much time she spent changing the pacing. So there's that incredibly beautiful scene when Peter and Clarissa and Richard, this is in Peter's memory, Peter and Clarissa and Richard are going out in a boat and Peter realizes Clarissa's never going to marry me. She's going to marry Richard Dalloway. And he knows that his love affair with her is coming to an end. Even in his despair and his recognition that he's kind of lost, they have this one last beautiful night. It's dark. They take robots out. They go to an island. They startle a chicken. Clarissa is incredibly charming. Uh, Clarissa and Peter go in and out of each other's minds. And... Up until the proof stage, Wolf is lengthening the sentences and adding semicolons to make it flow more. So you have that sense of that urgent, like, I'm in love and I've also lost my lover in that scene. And so she was paying so much attention to the kind of pacing that I think you and I are both responding to in the prose. It's really glorious. Can you take us to the first sentence? You actually, your introduction in the Norton Anthology is really beautiful. And that sentence is for most people kind of one of the most famous openings in literature, which is a hard thing to say because there are many famous openings. It's one of the great ones, (laughs) right? One of the great ones. And say, can you tell us that sentence and say what, as you said, she's setting herself a challenge and she's not going to make it so easy on the reader. No, she's not going to make it so easy on the reader. So the the novel opens, Mrs. Dalloway said she would buy the flowers herself. It's not a long sentence, and it's its own paragraph. And then we know immediately, I mean, even from the title, but then from that first line, Mrs. Dalloway, oh, shoot, this is a married woman. So when you think about novels that are about women in the tradition of the novel, usually those are about women moving toward marriage, right? That's one of the most common plots. Madame Bovary is an important and salient exception um, here, right? That's a novel about an unhappily married woman Mm. who who commits adultery, right? So to to really oversimplify Madame Bovary, but Mrs. Dell is connected to Madame Bovary, Mm -hmm. right? Because there's Mm -hmm. that unhappiness of the settled married woman. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
But Clarissa is not a woman who's going to do something about it. Clarissa is not a woman who's going to take action. So this is all going to be interior. And then Mrs. Dalloway said that she would buy the flowers herself. So we're in free and direct discourse, right? Which is something Wolf is taking from Jane Austen, but also a mode of having a narrator hover somewhere between the first person and the third person that even though we find it in Austin really blooms in the modernist period. And say what's free in direct discourse, if you can just explain. So what... it's not Mrs. Dalloway said, I will buy the flowers right. myself. So that will be direct discourse, That's quoting, direct someone quoting. is speaking, you know who's speaking and they're speaking into the world. It's not right. the interior and, you know, monologue. Quotation marks yes. and it, it, it's more like a, a play. Right. And then you could have, Mrs. Dalloway thought that she might buy the flowers later. And that would be interior monologue, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So Mrs. Dalloway said she would buy the flowers herself. It's not a quote exactly, but it's not exactly what Mrs. Dalloway's thinking, right? Mrs. Dalloway doesn't think she'll buy the flowers herself. That's not how our thoughts sound inside our own heads. Right. So. Once you think about it, it's in a very weird place. It's not in her head, but it's not out of her head. It's not audible to anyone. We can imagine a line that she says to someone, right? If you were making it into a play, you could say, Lucy, I'll buy the flowers myself. And Lucy is her servant. Lucy's the servant. And what you also said, what we know right away, that she would buy the flowers herself. She's she's in the city. Yes. If you're in the country, you're cl- you're clipping flowers from your garden. Right. She's rich. If I buy the flowers myself, I don't have a servant to say, "Oh, this errand is on me." <laughs> right. Today, I'm Today, run off. I I will take care of it. You know, you have enough. And and then the next thing is for Lucy had her work cut out for her, which I th- always think of. Um, That's the next sentence. Yes, Lucy, so, which is the servant. Tell us again the sentence. Yes. For Lucy had her work cut out for, for her. For Lucy had her work cut out for her. So we know exactly there's class. Mrs. Dalloway's doing this beautiful errand. And we know the servant by her first name. And it always makes me think of that um, line from Joyce is the Dead, Lily the caretaker's daughter was run off her feet. Yeah. Right? And using that colloquial language, run off your feet, cut out for you. Yeah. Right? And so... We open with this rather elevated, rather formal, you know, Mrs. Dalloway said she would buy the flowers herself. For Lucy had her work cut out for her. It sounds very 20th century, right? Mrs. Dalloway said she'd buy the flowers Mm. herself. That could be Mm. the novels very much involved with 18th century literature, and that could be a novel in an eight, a line in an 18th century novel. Mm -hmm, mm And then we're moving into the 20th century. And Rumpelmeyer's men are coming. They're going to take the doors off the hinges. Well, Rumpelmeyer's is a caterer, made fancy cakes. They had shops in London and Paris. It was a favorite of um, a favorite cake shop of lesbian writers. Really? Yes. So How Gertrude, did you find Gert, that out? Gertrude Stein loved Rump, Rumpelmeyer's. Who didn't? And um, they had a honey cake, I think, that was lovely. But when Wolf was writing Mrs. Dalloway, she was flirting with Hope Merlees, the science fiction writer and the lover of the classicist Jane Harrison. So Hope Merlees and Jane Harrison were lovers, and they were also friends of Wolf. And they were planning a trip to Paris, and there's a letter from Wolf to Hope Merlees saying, let's go to Rumpelmeyer's. Oh, so you think she tucked that reference in? Oh, yeah. So those who know, know. Those who know, know. Oh, that's so beautiful. I al- wouldn't have known that. Okay. No, already in the beginning, yeah. we have this hint of Clarissa as a woman who's 
desires are oriented towards women. Let me take you back to the title. So the title was originally not going to be Mrs. Dalloway, which I think overdetermines it a little bit that we think immediately about, as you said, Mrs. Dalloway married her husband's name. So we're in a certain kind of... Right. And she thinks very early on, no, this no more being Clarissa, this being Mrs. Richard Dalloway, yes. right? So that's one kind of overdetermination. But the original working title was The Hours. Yeah, and can you say a little bit about that? What what Wolf was maybe setting out to do by calling it the hours? Because the book, and I, when I reread it right now, I thought Big Ben striking constantly. The book is takes place in one day, right? Actually, mid morning to late evening. Right. Not even a full twenty four hours. Not even. Lots of things happen, but it's structured a sort of progression, and there seems to be a kind of urgency building toward that party. There's, a, there's an urgency building toward the party. There's a very direct um, taking up of the challenge set by Joyce and Ulysses to write the single-day novel. So she's very interested, and she reviewed Ulysses. She's famously not a great reader of Joyce. She found him to be... She's kind of overwhelmed by the Joyce's interest in the body, Joyce's interest in, you know, having Harold Bloom on the toilet in the outhouse and uh, Harold Bloom. Oh, Leopold. Leopold. We talked about Harold Bloom earlier. That was funny. That was a good one. That was a good one. That was a slip. So she reviews, she knows James Joyce personally at this point. No, she doesn't know him. I don't think they ever meet. They never meet. So he's in Europe writing all his... Yes. And she... But she's... uh, The Hogarth Press was approached to publish Ulysses. They said no, didn't want to take it on. But she described it as an underbred book. Meaning? Underbred, meaning vulgar, meaning... It's not her best moment of criticism. Interesting. But she was very interested in his project. I think more interested than that rather sniffy word mm-hmm. underbred mm-hmm. suggests. And very interested in the idea of the mock epic, specifically. So the structure of Joyce's Ulysses is to take every episode of Homer's Odyssey and map it onto the Leopold Bloom and Stephen Dedalus's day in Dublin. Wolf takes the idea of the Odyssey and the idea of how can you make a novel that actually has a ton of thematic and characterological depth and have it take only a single day? What, what do you yeah. What do you do? What's the fictional challenge, right? And so she's going to think about, like, I only want to show you one day, but I want to give you a sense that you really know Clarissa Dalloway and her life and yeah. that you really know Septimus and his life and the other characters and you really know their lives. And so she talks in her diary about, I think I've discovered what she calls my tunneling method. Mm-hmm. And it's all about memory, mm-hmm. right? Is that mm-hmm. one of the ways we do that in mm-hmm. stream of consciousness writing is we have characters, yes, they're going through their day, but they remember things. Mm-hmm. And because it's not documentary, because it's fiction, she gives them the memories that we need as readers right. in order to see, oh, this is who Clarissa, oh, I know an important new thing about Clarissa now. Oh, Peter's giving me another piece of who she was as a girl that's helping me understand who she is in her 50s. When we start the novel, she goes into her day and 
I, I, this may also be in your introduction where she plunges into London and it's very exciting and it's also a little bit strange because London is described as both this thrilling thing for her and then it's everything is the most conventional. There are omnibuses and there are people in parks and they all behave properly except the people who are a little bit off. Yeah. And then Septimus becomes this character who's off. But can you say a little bit about Clarissa's relation to London being in England, which I also read as not a British person. I, I read it as an, sort of from an anthropological perspective. Sort of what does this mean to be walking about London that day and going about your business as a wealthy woman married to a politician? Right. So it means a lot of things. Wolf is super interested in celebrating the fact that women can walk around the city alone. Hmm. When she was young and her, she had a stepsister who was about 15 years older than her and her stepsister wasn't allowed to walk around the city by herself. Oh. You so had in her generation, ha- something really fundamental changed for women. So that physical freedom yeah, yeah, yeah. of bodily freedom. By herself. Yeah. Wandering by yourself. Yeah. I can go wherever I want. Right? She has, Wolf has a beautiful essay called Street Haunting. And it's about coming to the end of the day, it's four o'clock, you've been working hard, you need a break, you invent an errand for yourself. I need a pencil. And then you make a route for yourself that's very circuitous to go by the pencil and you just detail all the people you see, everything you encounter. She's like, I need a pretext to leave my house and run this errand. So I'm going to pretend that I need this pencil. Probably you could get it at the corner, but let's take a 10 block walk. And then I'm going to run into this and I'm going to run into that. And that's going to make me think she's very, she's, Wolf is a huge walker. Her father was, Leslie Stephen was an alpinist. So he was a serious hiker of the Alps. And she says, how can you think that I find the Alps romantic? You know, I grew up with Alpenstocks and maps of Switzerland in, my, yeah. in the attic. Yeah. That to me was the furniture of everyday life. For me, the adventure is London. Okay. And so she okay. gives oh, wow. that to Clarissa, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Just like, it's so fun. And later in the book, when Elizabeth Dalloway takes the bus, she goes to the east end of London, which is um, towards the city, towards... neighborhoods full of immigrants, towards neighborhoods that aren't entirely white, towards neighborhoods where there's more poverty. Elizabeth is going on an adventure and imagines herself as kind of a pirate, which is perfect because her name's Elizabeth, right? So she's She gets on this bus and she says, a pirate, and it moved on. And she said, Adelaway probably hadn't walked here and she's on an expedition. And it's the daughter who is not quite like her mother. Right. And the mother keeps on not being sure whether she really likes this daughter. They're having that, you know, when someone's 18 and someone's 52, they're having that little tension that you have. Um, I'm noticing that you're not growing up to be just like me. What I love about that, so a couple things that are amazing about that. One is there were actually buses called pirate buses, like it, you okay. can take it absolutely literally. Like a pirate just means I'm getting on a jitney rather than an authorized bus. Right. That's one. But she's a pirate. Her name's Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth authorized all the voyages of piracy that started the British Empire. Wow. And so Elizabeth Dalloway is like a mini Queen Elizabeth, like starting her own conquest of empire by going to east of London where there are all these immigrants. Wow. Okay. Yeah. 
But lest you be tempted to think, oh, the daughter's a brave adventurer, the mom is not. Elsewhere in the novel, Peter remembers how much fun it was to take the bus with Clarissa when she was 18. Mm. Mm. And so this generation gap between the mother and daughter mm-hmm. is not just that they're so different from each other, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it used to be super fun to ride the bus with Clarissa when she was young. And now it's pretty fun to walk through London with Clarissa. Right. Yeah, this is what I found. In, when she's by herself, she's having a lot of fun. She gets very thrilled by certain things. She says, there's nothing more glorious than this June day in London. And there's a lot of moments in the, in the beginning of the book, in my memory now rereading it, where she's just thrilled and excited. And I'd never thought what you just said, that it's a woman walking around by herself and doing things on her own. That actually even buying the flowers is not totally conventional. She's so bourgeois, rich, entitled. It's actually, wow, she's embarking on something totally on her own. Right, right. So there's a real... So in the 70s, um, it was really popular to read this as like, isn't this great? She's so feminist, right? She's her own woman. She's found a way within a marriage to be independent. Right, because she doesn't know what it has. He goes to committees... And we'll talk about the committees in the Albanians and the Armenians. She doesn't know what he does. And she said, that's a good marriage. I have no idea what he does. He takes off. And he doesn't really know what I do. Right. And imagine saying that now. I mean, the Armenian genocide is going on. And Richard is in parliament. And he is trying to figure out how to negotiate an end to an ongoing genocide. And Clarissa's like, good for me. I have no idea what he's talking about. Imagine absolving yourself of knowing about the Wolf goes on there. She says, there were Armenians, Albanians, wasn't sure. Clarissa's taking a nap, kind of, or waking up. He goes back to Parliament, which is after coming home, I think, and after being at a lunch. And then Wolf keeps on going and says, she didn't know the difference. And should she know, and she's having a party, which made me think of Catherine Mansfield garden party and they were close friends right so this this someone's having a party someone else has tremendous suffering she says well i'm having a party what would it help if i didn't kind of virginia wolf actually there goes and like she doesn't just say she puts real pressure on it and leonard wolf was very active in international government and he wrote some of the documents so virginia wolf's husband he wrote some of the documents that um were the foundational documents for the first League of Nations. So he was really active in advocating for international cooperation through diplomacy to work for peace. And Wolf was a pacifist. And she was very involved in his intellectual work. Hmm. She knew what the Armenian genocide was. She understood that. And so when she gives Clarissa that thought of my parties matter more, she's inviting us to see that ambivalently. So Wolf wants us to see it one and the same time. Parties do matter. Don't trivialize parties. Bringing people together and gathering she, them. She has tests somewhere. What does she say when women in, in it's either in three guineas or a room of one's own what matters oh, and sports is very important oh it's in a room of one's own yeah it's, it's, sports is important but parties are not important, important. fashion's not important it, right exactly and they get recipes and they get rhetoric or something like that so she actually has a real issue that things are feminized and therefore insignificant but to go back that she gives us a character that from today's perspective we kind of bristle a bit and say who is this person who doesn't care about suffering in the world Yes. 
except that there are some things about suffering in the world that she really understands. And so she is the person in the novel who never meets Septimus Smith, the shell-shocked World War I veteran, but has tremendous imaginative sympathy. So can him. you tell us how he's set up in the novel? Because they're two parallel characters. And when the novel came out, the reviewers were like, I don't understand how these two plots work together. Okay, so tell us what the two so, plots So Clarissa's here. doing her day through London, and she's walking through London getting flowers for her party. She comes home, takes her friend, has come home from India. She says, oh, come to my party too. She takes a nap. She throws a party. As she's buying the flowers, a car backfires. And we hear about many different people on the street who notice and are startled by the backfiring car. And one of the things that I think we're meant to perceive in the degree to which people are startled is that even though it's 1923, people are still skittish because of World War I. Okay. So that the backfiring car, that noise, that startling noise on the street is upsetting or distracting but for some people it's it's triggering or traumatizing and one of the people whom it re-traumatizes is Septimus Warren Smith who is walking with his wife they've t he's taken the day off work and he's a World War I veteran it's 1923 so it's been four years and he's still suffering from war trauma and hallucinating and he's threatened to commit suicide And they have taken the day off, and um, they're going to go see a doctor. And they are not happy with their doctor, so they've gotten a referral to a doctor on Harley Street. And Harley Street is the kind of Madison Avenue of doctors. It is the, the place where you go when you want the most expensive, fanciest referral. And in fact, the doctor they're going to see is a sir, right? Yeah. Not just a doctor, yeah, yeah. but Sir William Bradshaw. So they both hear the car backfire. But when Clarissa is wandering in the streets, she passes a bookshop, Hatchard's Bookshop, which is still in London to this day, and there's a copy of Shakespeare's Cymbeline open in the window. And she reads a line, a song from Shakespeare's Cymbeline. She's just thinking, what should I buy my friend, Evelyn? And she reads, fear no more the heat of the sun, nor the furious winter's rages. Shakespeare's Cymbeline is a quite... Um, infrequently performed Shakespearean romance. It was very, very popular in the late 19th century. Tennyson loved it. He was reading it on his deathbed. So it was having a little moment when Virginia Woolf was a mm -hmm. young woman. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not that weird that she knows about Cymbeline, but it's unusual that Clarissa Dalloway is moved by Cymbeline. And it's a way of Woolf saying, this fancy housewife who seems like she doesn't care about people responds to Shakespeare and responds to not to be or not to be, right? Not just the, the most famous line of Shakespeare in the world, but like a slightly obscure Shakespeare song. And then later in the play, in the novel, Septimus thinks, fear no more the heat of the sun nor the furious winter's rages. Okay. So that same line, that um, first it's set out as poetry, so you see it in the novel as a quotation and you think, maybe I should look that up. Right. And then... Um, three or four more times, four more times, the lines recur, uh, I think, a couple times in Septimus's head, and then at the end in Clarissa's head. That's a way of us, of the novel signaling to us, these two people are simpatico. They are on yeah. the same wavelength. Yeah. Yeah. They understand 
how Wolf says how hard it is to live a single day, how brave it is to live a single day, right? Clarissa thinks that. They understand that's that can sound kind of goofy, but if you're feeling suicidal or if you're feeling vulnerable or fragile, it actually can feel super brave to live a day. Mm-hmm. And Clarissa and Septimus both get that in a way that lo- a lot of other characters in the novel. You say don't. something else about that. It's very, it's very poignant and kind of moving. It takes a, it's it's a lot of bravery or courage to live a single day, and then she gives us a novel where it's someone a, ends at a party and someone ends with a suicide. That's right. That's right. And his last words are, "I'll give it to you." Right, it's a gift, and she thinks her part of her parties as an offering. So, I mean, it's hard to talk about, isn't it? Because it's so sad, it's so poignant, and and it's kind of interlaced with these moments that I, I said earlier, when she's so joyful and kind of she says it's so beautiful and isn't it isn't it glorious and it's very British all these expressions, and he has these moments of ecstasy, but he's kind of in his head and he has language and he writes things and his poor wife keeps on saying, just come back to us. And he look, has, Septimus, he look, visions, she says. He's prophetic, he thinks he's Christ, but all this stuff, he writes things down and the maid discovers it and laughs her head off because he's considered insane. This incredible, cruel, incredibly cruel doctor. Yes. Who's the epitome of condescension and knowing things better. And he actually, when he finds out that he killed himself. He said, "The coward." Yes. The coward. Like you, you do. You failed at life, and it's all so. So to say something that would that so Clarissa says it takes courage to live a day, and Holmes says you're a coward for not living. Yeah. Right. And so think about courage. What would it mean to take it seriously to say that? What would it mean mm-hmm. to really? honor the fact that, say, Lady Bexborough, the woman she admires more than anyone who opened a bazaar with the telegram in her hand, John, her favorite, had been killed. We can snicker, maybe, Mm -hmm. at the ridiculous stiff upper lip of a woman carrying out her duties after her son has been killed. Or we can say... Wow, that is incredibly brave. Right, right. I maybe don't want to be that person if I heard I had a child who'd I, been killed, I, right? I wouldn't do it that way. But there's a majesty to what Lady Bexborough does that Clarissa really admires. When she thinks about Mrs. Foxcroft eating her heart out because John had died and the house would go to a cousin, we think about this woman who is going to be homeless because of primogeniture, right? Her son's been killed in the war. She doesn't have anywhere to live. She goes to the embassy party, and she's just kind of monging on cake, right? Because what else are you going to do? And we've seen, and maybe even been, that grieving person, right? I mean, there's the magnificent grieving person, and then there's the grieving person who's like, I'm just going to have another cookie. I'm just going to eat more. Right, right, right. All of these people are being brave, All of these people are going through their day and going to the office or walking across the park or getting on the subway or singing a song for a few coins because they're homeless. Every single act is an act of incredible bravery and courage. And it's actually 
I mean, I don't think we can live with that level of sensitivity all the time, but I think it's worth pausing for a minute over saying, like, absolutely, just cool. But like, also, Clarissa, in a way, she kind of notices, and then she leaves the reader with thinking, it's up to you to dismiss it or scoff at it or not acknowledge what it takes for people to take another step. Yes. And I think somehow that also gives her this kind of ecstasy and say, like, it's such a beautiful day. It's such an amazing thing. And, but at the same time, another step is a huge... Some of them will not take another step. Some of them will not take another step. We will not all survive. And one of the challenges Wolf is setting for herself in this novel is to say, look at this woman, apparently untouched by the war, completely touched by the war. Hmm. Hmm. Here we are living in this moment in 1923 in London, four years after the war, and one thing that Clarissa knows is, um, you know what? If you can throw a party, throw a party. Try and have a nice time. It's worth it. Yeah, yeah. So it's not frivolous, decadent, arrogant, and callous, but it's actually, she said, this is life. It and, matters. And if you have that today and people come to a party and people get dressed up, that is actually vitally important for us. It matters because yeah, yeah. we connect with each other yeah, and yeah. and we can see something beautiful and we can introduce people to each other and enjoy it. And um, that's better than other ways to pass a day. And does she give us this character, Clarissa Dalloway, as not a very likable person and she's considered a snob sometimes and impossible and people judge her and she judges herself. Do you think Wolf does that so we don't come up with a really likable character who says, isn't life grand kind of thing? That's not her. Right? You'd never want to listen to that woman. I mean, Because imagine... you wouldn't think she actually has the capacity. She just overlooks this kind of suffering. But the fact that she can't really connect to her daughter, the fact that she has these memories of her incredibly powerful crush on Sally Seton... And then she looks at her daughter, who's got a crush on an uh, unattractive middle-aged German woman. And it's like, look, if you're going to have a crush on a girl when you're 18, choose a pretty one. You know? And it's like, that's, that, a, that's a shallow but opinion. This woman, Mrs. Kilman, yeah. who is the German tutor, who has no other options, is employed by the Dallas way, Delaways to keep her basically from total destitution. Correct. Really, and their and world and gives you a character who suddenly opens up being greedy for a pink cake, wanting more, loving Evelyn, and you sort of realize, Elizabeth, and you're realizing, wow, this person has an entire life, is very judgmental, hates Clarissa Dalloway, but then says, no, I don't hate her, I don't hate her, because hate consumes me, I want to be greater than that. It's a struggle in her she gives you another little character who struggles to find something beautiful in life when a lot of things are set up against her. Yes. And it's a very moving character it's because I'm never invited to parties and she keeps on wanting to stop herself, but she can't. Can. She says, no one ever invites me. Because I'm so unhappy. And, and you know, imagine... If and Elizabeth is like, oh God. <laughs> I'm 18 Please years don't old. come. <laughs> Please don't come to my party, right? I mean, who wants to invite that person? And yet we feel such sympathy for, for the, 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 the depths of her unhappiness. And she's the daughter of German immigrants. She's been fired from her teaching job because she wouldn't denounce Germany during the war. And Richard does... Richard Dalloway, who's often dismissed as a fool... 
does a mildly courageous thing in hiring her. I mean, he's a conservative member of parliament. Easiest thing for him to do would be to be anti-German. Mm-hmm. But he's like, you know, why don't you tutor my daughter? That would be a, that then at least you get a little yeah, right, money. Right, interesting. So there's a real kindness in Richard that I think is kind of lovely. If we look at the third character, Peter Walsh, who yes. comes back from India, and I do want to talk about India, which when I reread it now, and partly because Natasha and I had this conversation about the way in a room of one's own, she inherits 500 pounds because her auntie fell off a horse near Bombay. And I had overread, overlooked this in teaching for 25 years until last year, and I thought, oh, so it takes a white lady in India to die to, for a woman writer to become her own. That's how Percival dies in the waves, too. He falls off a horse in a polo match in <laughs> India. There's a lot of equestrian right? deaths in India. In India okay. <laughs> so we get to India, but Peter Walsh, who comes back and has this washed up life a little bit. Yes. Let's talk about him. If the other, like Dalloway, we now know, there's a kind of, I don't want to say depth, but there are several dimensions to her. I think that's why it's so moving when she likes a moment because she also has this capacity to seeing real suffering. Yes. Peter is a funny character. Um, he got kicked out of college and he's back from India and he's incredibly clueless, but he's a lot of fun. He <laughs> is a real talker, but one of the most poignant moments in the novel is right after Septimus has killed himself and has died, there's a section break. Holmes says the coward and there's a section break and then it, it, we're in Peter's head and Peter thinks one of the triumphs of civilization it's an ambulance. And right? it's the ambulance with Septimus's body in it. But that's, on a novel, just for a moment, that's just incredible that the sound of that backfiring car and then the ambulance connects you to another character. And there's, there has to be no connection between them, but that we live in a city where things are so close. It's so cinematic, right? It's like a tracking yeah. shot. It's like you go from the ambulance, he's in the ambulance, the next character looks at the ambulance. And he's, then he thinks one of the triumphs of civilization. And he imagines this person's going to be healed, cured. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. Peter keeps missing it, right? <laughs> he, he never gets it right. So he thinks, you know, 1918 to 1923, those five years somehow had been very important. Well, no kidding. I mean, there was an influenza pandemic that killed more people than died in World War I, right? He's like, I wonder why 1918 to It seems like London has changed since I've been gone. And when you read about the so-called Roaring Twenties, they really don't come to England until 24, 25, 26. The Roaring Twenties in England especially are quite brief because wartime restrictions on sugar, butter, and other imports persisted up through 21, 22. So when Peter breezily thinks, oh, 18 to 23, those five years have been important, anyone reading the novel in 1925 would feel outraged at the ignorance and idiocy of, you know, like, we haven't had cake in five years. You know, like, we, of course we want that pink cake. But it's like someone writing a novel or an essay today and saying, I want the last three years seem different. Yes, and exactly. 2022 COVID. <laughs> it's odd. Something people feel seem off. People it's different about New York City. I can't put my finger on it. I just don't, don't know. know. The restaurants seem emptier. <laughs> That's Peter. That's Peter. He doesn't get it. 
He doesn't get it. And what does he have to get about Clarissa? Because he comes back. Does he come back for Clarissa? No. That's a good question. That's interesting. I don't think he comes back for Clarissa. I don't know why he comes back. Because ostensibly, the the pretext is that he's going to... He's fallen in love with a married woman who's got two young children. She needs a divorce. That divorce at that time will mean she's giving up her children to marry him. It becomes quite clear that he's not super motivated to make this happen, to free this young woman so that he can marry her. And he thinks explicitly, you know, at 53, one wanted less and less, and I was quite happy to be on my own. Mm Mm-hmm. He wants to leave India. I think he's done with his colonial job. I think he wants a job. Right. Um, he feels somewhat degraded that he, he may have to ask for a job from all these people around him. And he's kind of beyond help, beneath help, hmm. right? Hmm. I mean, I think one of the things the novel is really, really smart about is the very fine social distinctions that are not class distinctions, but within your intimate circle you may have a friend like peter walsh that really it's not worth you expending your social capital on helping him because he can't return anything or and he's a little bit hapless and he's failed a couple times before and if you ask a favor everyone's gonna kind of know that peter's not really gonna be able to do it Mm -hmm. and so you think about the kinds of favors peter is asking for a job at the palace a job in cabinet those are not small jobs mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know if 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 someone were to say to you oh uli i have a friend she has a phd can you get her a job in the english department never at happens. nyu never happens <laughs> <laughs> i have some friends who would like to teach at fordham as well and absolutely well let me make that happen for you right i mean you know it's, so, a, it's a high ask yeah. it's a high ask <laughs> we, so, and then peter comes to clarissa and he just shows up just shows up. She's well, not exactly happy. Kind of, he sent a letter and she kind of forgot. Oh, is he coming in June or July? Not totally right, sure. Right, so he might just show up or he might have said, I'll see you. See you on that day, actually, at 2 <laughs> she o'clock. She doesn't, doesn't pay attention. Right. And then she just walks in and she's mending her dress and she's like, oh. Uh. And, and he's playing with his knife and she's mending her dress. So she's like Sleeping Beauty. Right, or, um, uh, right, right um, <laughs> sewing with this needle. And, you know, so he, it's like he's penetrated this tower, gone through the brambles. He's got this <laughs> ineffectual pocket knife. And then they both, I mean, I don't know why Peter comes back, but what's so moving and strange about it is that whatever connected them when they were 18 still connects them now in their 50s. And they're deeply moved to be in each other's presence. It's not that they want to strike up another romance, but it's amazing for them to be together. Mm-hmm. And then he tries to tell her about this girl that he's fallen in love with, and it, it just seems small. Mm-hmm. It seems not mm-hmm. enough. Mm-hmm. You know, something that away from your best friends, the, tr- the friends of your youth, you've convinced yourself maybe this is going to work out and then you bring it back to someone who's known you from when mm-hmm. and you say, I'm going to marry this... You know, I mean, she's, she's young. She's probably 30 years younger than him. Mm-hmm. And he's like, ooh, you know, this is maybe not my best plan. And then he weeps. But they move in and out of each other's heads. She thinks... 
he's going to think I look old. And he thinks she looks old, but I won't say it. <laughs> but then, I'm not sure if I'm right. When they start remembering what happened, and there's also what happened with Sally, mm -hmm. uh, who she had this big crush on, then this guy Hugh who kissed Sally, which is an outrage, this proper Englishman who harassed this woman and no one believed her. Um, but when they go back to remember how happy they were, what great moments they have, do they actually then start to remember this chemistry? But it seems like Mrs. Dalloway says, yes, this happened in the past, and now I'm in this present. And with Peter Walsh, I'm not totally sure. Is he stuck in this past or feels he wants to invest this past with something new? You know what I mean? Sort of when we remember something super intense from mm -hmm. the past and say, oh, and then you get a little bit excited and you talk about the memories and they become a little bit sort of emotionally charged. And the other person like, yeah, but that was 20 years ago. <laughs> Or 30 or whatever. Well, we don't know, right? Because the novel ends ambiguously. So at the very end of the novel, Richard says to Elizabeth, I looked across the room and I saw a beautiful girl and I realized it was you. Which is such a tender thing for a father to say to an 18-year-old girl. You know, she's just on the cusp of adulthood. And in a very tender, super appreciative way, he's like... I saw this young woman and it's you, yeah. honey, you look great, yeah. right? It's not creepy, it's just super right. loving. And so Richard and Elizabeth, you see this moment, it's the first moment, I think the only moment in the novel we have between father and daughter. Mm -hmm. And we see how much he loves her and that he's got a good relationship with her and he appreciates her. And she's been very nervous throughout the novel and upset. Everyone's comparing her to a lily and a hyacinth and she's like, oh, stop it, I wanna be a veterinarian, I'm gonna take the bus. <laughs> you know. And so she's like, dude, this beauty stuff is not for me. But he's like, Elizabeth, you're great, you're growing up, I'm proud of you. Clarissa has heard about Septimus's death and she's withdrawn from the party and absorbed it in a very intense, visceral way and wondered what it means that this young man has died and absorbed the, 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 the painful fact that even a wonderful, successful party can't exclude death, right? She says, here's death at my party. I don't read that as, damn it, I can't believe it entered. I read it as, you know, mortality is with us, right? Mm -hmm. um, always. And then she's going to come back to the party, and we move to Sally and Peter, who both loved her when she was a girl, whom she, both of whom she loved when she was a girl. They're talking with each other. Sally's gotten fat. Clarissa can't appreciate this older Sally. She's got five enormous boys and lives in Manchester and has hydrangeas, and Clarissa finds that all. <laughs> That's great. There's miles of conservatories and myriads of hydrangeas. I love that. <laughs> so She's super, funny. super rich. Was for there she was. And that's the end. So how do you take that, right? Well, give us a sentence before. There's two sentences before. Because there's look. two major words which I didn't understand. I'll ask you about what they're supposed okay, to mean. So, so the last sentence is whose, whose words then? Peter's. Well, it's in Peter's head. It's in right? Peter's head. He says there's... For there she was. I will come, that's in quotes, said Peter. But he sat on for a moment. What is this terror? What is this ecstasy? He thought to himself. What is, the, what is it that fills me with extraordinary excitement? It is Clarissa, he said. 
for there she was. I mean, when I read this again, the terror and ecstasy that by the end of the book, she's no longer just this upper middle class lady doing a party, but I thought she becomes a figure for life, the terror and the ecstasy. And he says, life is this thing. Because they keep on saying this is life and she keeps on trying to get Yes, and there and there she is and she's somehow weirdly, imperfectly, despite her snobbery and everything, she also is life to them. She is this incredibly important imper- personage to them. But it's not about anything that has anything to do with plot mm-hmm. at this point, right? Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. it's just being in her presence makes me feel alive. Being in her presence makes me appreciate what it is to be alive. Being in her presence matters. And I see that she's silly. I love her. When they think they are alive in her presence, I'm kind of interested in this, like being a little bit more alive than alive. <laughs> yeah. You know, because that's what a lot of what you said earlier, there's the marriage plot and sort of there are these moments and they're in love and they're still in love also. And it's a different kind of love. It's no longer maybe this sort of early romantic or erotic love. Who's the they then? Sally and Peter. With Clarissa. With Clarissa. Mr. Dalloway, uh-huh. Richard, uh-huh. buys her this big bouquet of roses wrapped in tissue paper and says, I'm going to tell her I love her after this luncheon where they mention her. And he says, oh, Clarissa, I so mean. I'm going to go home right now and tell my wife I love her. What does he do? When and he, he can't say home? it. He can't say he it. Can't and it's really, it. it's actually incredibly touching because I don't like Richard Dalloway very much. I don't really care. He just seems like a bit of a, you know, guy who goes to British Parliament. But I really want him to be able to say it in the book. And it's almost painful that he comes in and then he gives her the rose. She loves the roses, puts them on the mantelpiece and all that. And she she not- doesn't love the roses. They don't go with her decor. Oh, I thought she liked She that. says, thank you. Okay. But good. she sets them to the side. Uh- <laughs> Because they don't match. So he's, it's a swing and a miss. You know, okay, he's like, I, didn't even, okay, I, I can't. Got that. But then he can't say it. He can't say it. Why can't he say it? She doesn't want to hear it. There's something in their relationship mm-hmm. that's so, mm-hmm. so she thinks about how she failed him. Mm. When she thinks in the passage about the match in the crocus mm-hmm. and how... Once she'd failed him at Cliveden, once she'd failed him at Constantinople, sometimes she realized she felt what men felt, right? So, and what is meant by that? Can you explain? I think what she means is she felt attracted to someone. She felt desire. I think oh. Clarissa's language is, oh. I felt what men felt. Oh. I think she means I felt desire. I wanted to sleep with him. I wanted okay. to respond okay. to him yeah. as a wife, okay. like sexually. Right. And, but I can't. Mm. And she fails him at Constantinople, which is significant, right? Because it's um, the Istanbul, we call it now, right? Obviously, but the, the capital of Turkey, it is a, a cosmopolitan city that sits 
um, on the border of Europe and Asia. It's a city that Wolf traveled to. It is the city where Wolf sets the sex change of Orlando in her novel Orlando. It is a place in the British tourist orientalist imagination of sexual freedom. Mm. A place where you would go to have a fun vacation mm -hmm. that would be sensuous mm -hmm. and intimate. Mm -hmm. And so to fail your husband in Constantinople okay. is to say, I am not responding to you with desire. I cannot return your desire. Wow. And so, um, and you know, when she goes to bed at night, she um, lies in the attic and reads about the retreat from Moscow. Yeah. Which is not... The most erotic. No. Not for most people, not for some people, maybe. So when he can't say this, he can't say it because he... Because I think he's receiving her coldness. He knows that she is not a demonstrative woman and that for him to come in with a big gesture of roses in and I love you... See, I like Richard quite a lot, and I actually think yeah. it's a sign of how well he knows her and that he loves her, yeah, yeah, yeah. that he doesn't say I love you because I don't think she would like it. Interesting. I was just thinking when I said I don't like him, what I think is amazing when we think of Virginia Woolf, even in 2022, where people would still say woman novelist because we haven't really left that world <laughs> yet, right? Yet. And she's a feminist, as you say, or claimed by feminism as, a, as one of the great women writers. She writes all these essays, why there are no great women writers, etc. But what I found really moving, that she understands the pain or that what you said, he knows that he shouldn't say, I love you. But there's something to me, what I feel as a man, I think there's something sad or painful that he, he, maybe he's respectful of her, but he can't say it. I also felt he's very much a man who doesn't come home and expresses his emotions. So I also read it as that, that a man suffers from, let's say, to put it really bluntly, a man suffers from the patriarchy because he can't express himself. Yes, right. You so know, one of the things patriarchy teaches men is tenderness is not for you. Yeah, and then you have Septimus and Peter Walsh. Peter Walsh, the failure, and Septimus who feels too much. Yes. And... And that doctor who basically tells him, you know, just man up. Right. <laughs> it's like, right. you're a veteran. Okay, what was that? He said, what was it, like a shindy with some boys with gunpowder or something? Someone says about yes. the war, that silly war. Right. Right, right. And he, and he keeps trying to say, you know, I've failed. And they won't take it seriously. Yeah. They won't listen to it. And, you know, Septimus, at his most insane, uh, when he's in the park and hallucinating, he thinks communication is health, communication is happiness, which is a quotation from one of Montaigne's essays. Communication is happiness, yeah. Communication yeah. is health. Communication is happiness. Mm. So if you read that in the context of a hallucinating, shell-shocked veteran, you think, oh, yeah, right. If you read that in a Montaigne essay, mm -hmm. it's very different, right? I mean, when you read essays from the 16th century France that are about making an attempt to overcome your grief at the loss of your friend by writing essays and collecting quotations mm -hmm. and making a connection with other readers and hoping as a provincial officer 
you can somehow have your reading make you connect to other people. So he's the inventor of the essay. Mm -hmm. And when Montaigne says communication is health, communication is happiness, I think we hear that as, that's right, human flourishing requires us to be with other people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so one of the things that Wolf does, even though you don't know necessarily when you're reading that sentence that... That's a quotation from Montaigne. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She gives Septimus these lines that are from Montaigne, that are from Shakespeare, that are from Homer. And something in them, deep, deep in our ear, has us hear that the, maybe the grammar of it, maybe some resonance for us, has us appreciate the intelligence and the thoughtfulness and the sensitivity within Septimus. We have to perceive that because we have to feel that Septimus's death is an incredible tragedy and a huge loss. And if Septimus's ravings were more like a transcription of the ravings of someone who's hallucinating, Mm. which tend not to be very coherent, it would be harder for us to understand him as a character. But because we have Rizia's memories of him when they were in Italy and they Mm -hmm. were courting, because we have that moment of lucidity when he's making the hat with her at the table right before he kills himself, and because he quotes Homer and Shakespeare and Montaigne in his hallucinations, I think we as readers feel the... power of his mind and the loss to everyone to society Mm -hmm. that it's been shattered by war taking all this I've never thought of Septimus in this way it's really beautiful what you just explained what do you think Wolf's stance is then toward the entire tradition toward all of reading because one of your books is Wolf as a reader when you just said Communication is vitally necessary for human flourishing. Martin Buber writes, I and thou, in 1922, I believe, like he says, there is no solitary self. We only exist in communication. We are together before we are separate. But what does Wolf think when she puts Septimus in this place that he's carrying in a way the hope that communication could save us and then he's not saved in this book? But it doesn't end the book yes right right so one thing is it's an indictment of how we educate people okay so septimus reads aeschylus translated wolf says wolf was writing her essay on not knowing greek at the time um wolf knew greek she studied greek um quite uh seriously from the age of 13 so when virginia wolf's mother she wasn't virginia wolf then when wolf's mother died when wolf was 13 Her father got Walter Pater's sister, Clara Pater, to come and give her Greek lessons as a kind of something to distract you. Mm -hmm. It was kind of amazing. So Wolf always associated Greek with mourning because she was grieving her mother when she was learning the Greek alphabet. Okay. And Wolf was quite a decent reader of Greek. So she would use a dictionary, but she could could sit down with um, a, a Greek play 
and a dictionary and translate it. Okay. And she would translate, you know, yeah. tra- got Agamemnon and translate a couple pages. Okay. So she was pretty good. But she talks about how even knowing the language, having the lexicon, doesn't mean you know what it was to be in 5th century Athens, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot we don't know. And she says, we don't know where people laughed. You know, we know this play is a comedy. We know this play is a tragedy. But what was the funniest line to them, right? <laughs> it's a good question. It's a very good question, right? Yeah. Um, and it's an impossible one to answer. So it's kind of fun to think about. So when she says, Septimus reads Aeschylus translated... It sounds snobby, but it's also an indictment of the snobs that haven't given this young man who would have benefited from an Oxford or Cambridge education a col- access to a college education. His name is Septimus, it's a Latin name, because he's the seventh kid, right? He comes from a poor family. Septimus Smith is not a rich child, right? So the seventh born child of a family called Smith is unlikely to have that level of family wealth, and we know he doesn't. So then he goes and takes night classes with Miss Isabel Pohl um, at the very school where Wolf taught night classes when she was in her early 20s. And uh, she, she writes to one of her friends, um, I gave a lecture last night and I said, the poet Keats died at the age of 26 and he wrote all his poetry before that. <laughs> and she's just, just, good one. <laughs> just, just doing a facepalm on, you know, I can't believe I said that to my students. He wrote all of his poetry before his death. <laughs> yes, indeed, Miss Wolf, how interesting. So, Unlike so, other people. <laughs> so it's so funny. So, but Septimus has this like night school education and she's been having him read Antony and Cleopatra mm-hmm. and encouraging him to go to war. Mm-hmm. So, Antony and Cleopatra is not a great play to read. Mm. That does not end well for Mark Antony, right? He ends with a botched suicide. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Cleopatra ends with a very dramatic and very non-Western, you know, kind of uh, deliberately orientalized suicide in that play. So if you want someone to be inspired to go off to war, Antony and Cleopatra is not your play, right? And so... Septimus is being fed propaganda. And the propaganda comes to him through literature. (laughs) So Septimus is being fed propaganda. And the propaganda comes to him through literature. Antony and Cleopatra is a little glitch in the system that teaches him to doubt the propaganda he's been receiving. Right? That's nice. Um, so there's a glitch in the system with Antony and Cleopatra, if you see what I'm saying. But one of the, one of the things that enraged Wolf the most during and after World War I was the way in which the canon was being used to encourage men in her acquaintance to be patriots and to sign up for war. Mm. And Wolf was really good friends with the poet Rupert Brooke, mm-hmm. who died of blood poisoning very early in the war, in 1915, I think. Um, never saw the war turn into trench warfare. Never knew that the war was going to become a totally different conflict than he'd imagined. He imagined a brief, heroic war. And he wrote some incredibly beautiful sonnets and poems that are, that are quoted and alluded to in Mrs. Dalloway hmm. about World War I. And then he died. And after his death, 
his poetry was used to recruit more men mm. to be cannon fodder. And Wolf was asked to write the preface. Mm-hmm. And she was asked to promote the book. And mm. she was furious. Imagine how furious you'd be. Mm. I mean, your he friend was, is dead. Your friend is dead. And you're going to have more boys going into war based on this poetry. <laughs> Please sell this poetry book for me. No. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, was the book received in this way that Wolf... It's hard to imagine it's published in 25. And are people reading it when it comes out and saying, this is a pretty severe indictment of our culture, which has had this war and now keeps on going, marching forward, assigning the same readings. And this guy sort of ended up dead. No. No. How do people read it when it comes out? Uh, oh, there's this group of people writing the stream of consciousness stuff. Really? And here's another one, right? Really? And it's pretty good. It's one of the better ones, you know. Okay. They put it in the category with Mae Sinclair and Dorothy Richardson and Joyce. And um, so, you know, they were much more interested in the formal experiment. Septimus doesn't really emerge as a major figure. So people... Overlook it, kind overlook of. Or he's there, but it's just he dies and, okay, that's a side character. Yes. Interesting. Right. Yeah. But, you know, when, when I teach it now and I teach it all the time, I often have veterans in my class or children of veterans in my classes. And it's incredibly important to me to represent Septimus yeah, yeah, in a yeah, responsible yeah. and sensitive and thoughtful way. And, yeah, and yeah. actually, he's the character who's closest to a traditional undergraduate in age besides Elizabeth. Right. Right? And so if you think about, like... Right. Who's going to pull you through this difficult book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Septimus and Elizabeth are um, accessible yeah. entry points for traditional age undergrads, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. So it matters to have something to say about them. Like, you know, it just is, it, that's important. That connects to something we talked about right before the podcast a bit, how a lot of books that we read today from the canon, this is 90 years old or something like that, or almost 100 years old, they have things in them that today we kind of stop and are startled because our sensitivities have changed, our awareness has changed. When I reread it now, I saw so many references to India, constantly, constantly references. It feels like the whole book is kind of undergirded by this wealth generated and people going off and coming back and being there and being and liking the vice consuls or not, or some lady doing orchids in Burma and all these things are there. But I was perfectly trained to overlook them entirely. Right. Because I really wasn't trained, sort of, we went to school at the same time, sort of early 90s. It was, feminism had really been there full on. Black studies was there full on, but it hadn't, and post-colonial studies was there, but it really hadn't, I think, reached into ways of reading and saying, how do we make sense today of these references which seem peripheral, but they're no longer peripheral for our concerns today, I think. No, they aren't. And I'm wondering what's the most interesting way to think about the fact that Peter's been a colonial administrator in India, right? I mean, one of the ways that Wolf... So two, two important things to note. One is that she's married to a former colonial administrator, mm-hmm. and she is the daughter of many colonial administrators, as well as many anti-colonial... Um, right. 
activists and politicians, right? So, so in her family, there was an active debate about what's the right thing to do about empire. Mm-hmm. When Leonard resigned from his job as an administrator in what's now Sri Lanka um, and came back, he was... Uh, their house in Bloomsbury became a kind of place where many Indian intellectuals, Mulkrajanand among them, uh, would come and visit and have tea and talk about what's going on in India, you know, what's Gandhi want, you know, how are we going to get Indian independence? Wolf was very interested in this, but she was also racist. You know, I mean, and she talks about, I mean, she, ref- she uses a word that I would um, not using ever, right? She calls the workers in India coolies, which is a racist word, and that appears in the novel. So there are interesting and complicated things, I think, to say about the progressivism of the ways in which Wolf understands the wrongs of colonial administration at the same time as she's consistently unable to imagine the humanity of Indian people, right? And that's really something I learned from my friend Irma Seshgiri, who's written Race in the Modernist Imagination. And she's written really beautiful things about Wolf, especially to the lighthouse. That's much more um, Irma's book. But Seshgiri's work is really amazing for thinking about this topic. and. I think Wolf is very alert to how many of the white bourgeoisie in London, well, the bourgeoisie is all white at that time in London, but the, but let's emphasize the whiteness of the bourgeoisie in London in the 20s is involved in this vast network of empire. So not only do you have India, but you also have Mal Pratt, the Irish woman, who is excited and is selling flowers and throws one toward the queen. So Wolf puts this totally anachronistic, royalist, poor Irish woman in 1923? I mean, the chances of an Irish woman in London not being a Republican are slim in 1923. But there's a character, there's an Irish woman on the street, it's just a line, and she's like, oh, the queen's passing. Cool. That's not what Irish people thought, by and large, in 1923. But that's a moment in the novel. Or Lady Bruton has them over for lunch. What's her plan? Let's have all the poor people emigrate to Canada and set them up. Right? And so you have this vision of London as still as the last gasp of the center of this empire, right? And the people in the novel are still imagining themselves as the nucleus, Mm -hmm. the heart of the world, right? We have even the clock, Big Ben. That sound marks the hour on the BBC, not just in London, in Mumbai, in Kingston, Jamaica, in Vancouver, you know, it doesn't matter. You got it. That's right. You hear that chime. And so the chime in the book is marking time and space and territory, right? The skywriting airplane is, flies over Greenwich. So lest you forget about how we know about the time, Greenwich is right there. That's setting time for the planet. I mean, think about how weird that is. 
we all live on this planet that's hurtling <laughs> through the universe. The one spot in England is where time starts, and because it's when it's noon, every and then that's weird. Else, everybody else is minus or plus. Isn't that weird? Well, it's really weird. It's interesting, right? That like someone picked like a dot on the globe and said all time is connected in you know plus or minus to this time. But it's kind of great that she puts her book in there. And then they have these kind of upper classy debates of how charity should run and the prostitute. It's not the fault of the prostitutes and all this. And like, oh, they're these poor people and it's something systemic and we should ought to give them a bit. But <laughs> if you if you take a step back and these kind of debates that I've been interested in and that we've all been part of. So there's this claim that one of these books, such as Mrs. Dalloway, has universal significance, addresses the human condition. Mm. And I think what's sometimes wrong about that claim is that means the human condition is this overarching grand thing. And I think what Wolf says, the human condition is all these particulars all the time plus all these tensions, which doesn't excuse when you said she has these racist moments, she has racist convictions, she doesn't even grasp half of the planet. But she will not make a claim for anything like an overarching concept of the human, I think. You know what I mean? That it's not, Clarissa doesn't become the model for all people. Wolf is actively resisting that, actively rejecting that. So when you say, what is she, what is... What does the history of literature mean to Virginia Woolf? What does Woolf's reading mean to Virginia Woolf? Um, one of the things it means is, you know, these texts really move me, but don't tell me the order I need to read them in. Don't tell me how I need to read them. Don't put them in a syllabus. Don't try and tell me that they're going to persuade me that I have to be a patriot or I have to go to war, or I have to sacrifice myself for you. Let me think about them on my own terms. Let me decide. And I think for me, despite all of Wolf's very um, serious limitations as a thinker in some areas, one of the reasons why many writers since Wolf continue to draw inspiration from her, including... Um, African-American writers, writers of color, African writers, um, Arab writers from North Africa continue to draw inspiration from Wolf, even knowing in the knowledge of how racist she would have been to them, is that openness, is that, 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 like, refusal to make the grand claim. It's not, you know, Mrs. Dalloway stands for womanhood. It's Mrs. Dalloway is a very specific woman in a very specific moment in time. And we can learn a lot from thinking about what a day is like for her. Mm -hmm. Right? So that Mm -hmm. microscopic. And I think that's actually what fiction is really good at. Can you say one more thing about what you said, how Wolf reads herself? Because your book sort of takes her reading practice and her response to other books as a different model from a conventional sort of these are the greats, although she was very, very invested in what's really great. She said about one of the guys at the party, he was a terrible bad poet or something like that. It's very funny. And, but say something about how she reads, and it's not just her subjective personal response to it. She responds also to something in these texts. She's super committed to figuring out what the project of the text is and responding to it on its own terms. And whether it works on the claims it tries to make for what it's trying to do. So it's trying to do the consciousness of one person going through her day 
giving us how a sense does, of that. How does it and do that? Does it succeed or does it not succeed? Right. Dickens is, has Dickens has a different project, yeah. right? Dickens is trying to show you like a community in London around um, the Chancery Courts. He does a great job right. of that. He's right. not trying to get us deep right. into the psychology of one yeah, person, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Chekhov is trying to do something different. What an amazing thing. What an amazing assignment Chekhov set for himself. How cool is that? Like, what would it mean to pull back a little bit at the end of every story, not sew it up, right? Right. Okay, so that's a kind of... What about Austin? What does she think about Austin? Oh, Austin is so, I mean... You know, her gifts and her circumstances matched each other completely. Her right? gifts and her circumstances matched each other completely. As different from the Brontes, right? The Brontes would have benefited from traveling, from mm. a wider experience of the world. Mm -hmm. Jane Austen is a master of ironic restraint in the narrative of the lives of an English village. And she says in On Not Knowing Greek, she writes about Sophocles and Jane Austen in the same paragraph. And she says, you know, uh, like Sophocles, Austen had chosen that dangerous art where one slip means death. And she talks about the moment in Emma where Emma says to Mr. Kn where Mr. Knightley says to Emma, let me have it backwards, I will dance with you. And that's the beginning of, right? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the beginning yeah, of the yeah. denouement yeah, of yeah, the yeah, novel, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. I will dance with you. It's not a fancy sentence. It's not multiple semicolons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so there's a... Uh, she has a sentence, a sentence that can outlast the winter, the winter holidays. Oh, yes. I love that. I think it's the essay on Austin, maybe, or something like that. That she can put Sophocles and Austin in the same sentence and just move on, <laughs> or same paragraph. That's kind of what you're saying, that she's not saying, I'm going to set them up in these hierarchies chronologically and some anxiety of influence pattern, which is sort of Harold Bloom, but you relied on White Sheet Dimmock's idea that this, she sees something in Austin, she says, Austin is close to perfection in what she tries to do. Yes. Other people try to do other things. Right. Other people want to give you full-on interiority or a poem that makes you think you're seeing some object or whatnot. So she takes them on their own terms, evaluates them on those terms, and I think that's actually pretty interesting. She says, I'm going to accept, if you want to experiment in this formal way, go do it. Right. It may not work out. And she's an avid reader. So she, she wrote 400, 500 reviews in her life. And her books are so different. Her books are different from each other. So she experiments. She's like, not like, oh, I hit upon this recipe. It works. It does something different next book. Every, all her books are different. She's yeah. always setting herself a project. So, yeah. you know, Jacob's Room comes out, the novel, right before Mrs. Dalloway. People say, doesn't really have a character. <laughs> so then Mrs. Dalloway, she's like, I think I want to write a character. <laughs> like, so she's like, I'm going to go all in on character. So she gives us Mrs. Dalloway. And then she's like, okay, I'm thinking about time. Mrs. To the Lighthouse will be. <laughs> to the Lighthouse will be about time, but in a different key. Yeah. Right? So very connected to kind of. Proust and memory and yeah. thinking about yeah. structure yeah. and I want to think about the impact of the war with a before and mm. after. Mm. 
right? That's very highly developed. And then in the wave, she's like, what if I didn't have any plot? You know, I mean, it's just every, every minute she's, she's spinning the dial Let and trying a, a new project. A silly, strange question. What would Wolf make of, because she would have been interested in something like that, how people read her books today and sure. point out, for example, uh, you have this kind of deliberate moment of ignorance, for example, about people not like yourself. You keep on failing those people in your novel. You're shortchanging something here by not giving them enough space even for a moment because there's something reductive. I think it would make her incredibly impatient. <laughs> I think she would be irritated because... Was she an irritable woman generally, do you think? I think she's a ton of fun. Yeah. Great talker. Yeah. Um, but in, when Margaret Llewellyn Davies asked her to write the preface for the collection of memoirs by working women, uh, the Women's Cooperative Guild, called Life as We Have Known It. It's a wonderful collection. Um, so the Women's Cooperative Guild was like a book club reading group for women who were in a, in a union... And they would meet and talk and read books. And then they were asked to write memoirs. And they wrote these memoirs. And they're lovely. You know, it's like I got married. And then I right away had 10 children. And my life has been hard. Right? And they're very much working class women's memoirs from the 30s. I mean, they're... Like social history from the ground up. Absolutely. (laughs) And Virginia Woolf, will you write the introduction? And she's just like, who knows what meat makes a miner's dinner? She's like, I can't be bothered to do that let that inch of research. She's like, when so-and-so's doing, when so-and-so's making dinner, and then she's like, who knows what meat makes a miner's dinner? I'm like, Virginia, like, you, this is something you could find out. You could find out. Where all of her essays otherwise go from the grandest philosophical political statement to the tiniest detail. And, and say, this costs six pence. She Ref- always brings it right back down to total material reality, but not there. Refusing to be interested. I do not want to... Don't tell me what miners eat for dinner. So there's a... There's, I, mean, I kind of love that about her. It's awful, right? It's a bad quality. But the majesty of it is kind of funny. So I think... Yeah. I mean, it's just like, I'm not interested. You know? so, so, so I think there's a little bit of incuriosity. She was often uh, pretty overwhelmed when people from other countries or who spoke other languages expressed their admiration for her. So Victoria Ocampo, the Argentine writer and publisher who's yeah. largely responsible for bringing Wolf's writing to Argentina. And so the, the Sur writers, you know, yeah. Borges' involvement in Wolf, his translation of Orlando and the flourishing of magic realism in South America. Virginia Woolf plays some role in yeah, that yeah. through Victoria Ocampo, who came and gave Virginia Woolf the gift of like a kind of magnificent Argentine butterfly. You know, like a really over-the-top gift that you think would really delight Woolf. And it kind of overwhelmed her. Okay. And she was like, wow, this Spanish woman has a big crush on me, and it would be great if you left now, you know? <laughs> <laughs> okay. And so, you know, and she wasn't super generous with young women. She wasn't a great mentor to young women. Um, my friend and colleague, um, Catherine Simpson, has written really beautifully about how when Wolf was a very young woman, she had incredibly intense homoerotic friendships with 
uh, very smart women who were very active in social justice work. Um, kind of the British equivalent of settlement housework, you know, doing charity work, working with people who were poor. That's when Wolf was teaching night school. She was stuffing envelopes to get women the vote because, of course, women didn't have the vote until Wolf was in her 30s. Um, and she was very interested in that work. And then when she started publishing, she dropped a lot of her women friends and started hanging out with the men of Bloomsbury who were much less engaged in practical politics, with the exception of her husband. Hmm. And then later in life, more friendships with older women. So, you know, I don't think Wolf would have handled the kind of critique I'm levying against her, that we're levying against mm -hmm. her very well. Mm -hmm. um, I also know that she's smarter than me by a lot. Like every time <laughs> I think, huh, I wonder about this passage, I find like, oh, that's an allusion to Homer. Oh, that's Keats. Oh, that's the Bible. Oh, she was reading. Oh, she was thinking about that. She anticipated that. That metaphor, you know, you think about like Clarissa plunges into London. Right. Well, that anticipates Septimus's fall. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, that joyous plunge mm -hmm. is echoed at, at the end of the novel with a tragic plunge. So... That's not an accident. Right. That's setting up this, I mean, there are, that's one of a thousand moments like that. But that's what we talked about just before the podcast. And I think, okay, so a writer as careful, as meticulous, as deliberate, when she uses a racially offensive term and she would find out not acceptable anymore socially. She would say, who's so society? Who's setting these terms? And she would maybe say, oh, and this is what we're saying. If she's so deliberate, why does she use a term here that does too much work almost rather than a writer who has all of language available and could have used a term that wouldn't do all that work for her in that moment? You know what I mean? That the term does a lot of work and sometimes... And, and that could be a moment in a novel where someone says, yeah, here it doesn't quite go to where she really wants to do, to really craft every sentence out of her own. Well, and I think about how she resisted the word lesbian and liked sapphist better. Okay. Right? Because... <laughs> <it's> like... <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think it's, it's right. cooler, right? It makes you sound like a poet. Makes you sound like a poet. <laughs> right. It's a little... Um, it's a little inside. It's a little inside. It's a little less direct mm -hmm. about what bodies are doing together. Yeah. And a little more about an affiliation. And so I think... Um, I mean, maybe I'm not giving her enough credit. I think when she talks of herself as a, as a sapphist or thought, talks about sapphists, you know, and, and um, she's very thoughtful about language and very deliberate about language. And in Three Guineas, she says, you know, I'm not an upper middle class woman. I am of the class of the daughters of educated men. Right. You can't assign me to a class right. because the class structure is about wage earning. And because we have been excluded from capital, we're not in that class. <laughs> we we can't be part of a class. We're daughters, that. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's really important. And yeah. she talks about burning the word feminist. So I think you know, I hope I would hope eventually, if you confronted her with terms and showed her how dehumanizing they were, and how she could say, 
To make the point she wanted to make, I mean, the, 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 when we started this with the word coolies, which appears once in the book, mm-hmm. it's Peter talking about the workers with whom he worked mm-hmm. in India, mm-hmm. and he is given an achievement that Leonard made in real life, which is inventing a kind of plow. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting little biographical fact. So he invented a kind of plow. I don't know, probably the people in, maybe the people in Sri Lanka thought, thought it was a useful kind of plow for the kind of farming they were doing. Maybe they thought now, as soon as he turns his back, we're going to go back to our traditional methods. I don't, I can't answer that for you. I don't know about the plow. What I can say is that you're absolutely right. That sentence about, I'm remembering my experience in India as an administrator, and I collaborated with the people whom I was supervising in a, within a racist colonialist structure to help them think about a better way to farm. You could say that without using a racist word. Mm-hmm. And that might be meant to say, even within the structure of colonialism, I attempted to be a collaborative and humane um, mm-hmm. supervisor mm-hmm. of farm labor. Right. Granted, the kind the, the sure. structures of farm labor are um, unequal. Let's say unequal at the at at the best. Yeah. Right. So yeah. So maybe maybe Virginia Woolf could come to say that's a word I'm not going to use anymore. But I think the interesting thing is about these debates. Like who, Wolf would be imp- and ought to be impatient because there's no easy answer. But to open something else up here and say also, I think this is what you do in the introduction to your book on um, feminism and the reader and Virginia Woolf. How do we think of literature as actually having its afterlife, being read in different contexts, speaking to people with very different sensitivities and letting the work still speak there and actually really kind of putting it to the test of does it do what Virginia Woolf would have done? Does it actually do everything it's trying to set out to do, to give you fully this person's mind? And I think that's the way to do it with a word like that. And then whether she would be impatient or not, she ought to be impatient with us. Who are we? Right. We just, right. you know. <laughs> but, 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 but whether it's Virginia Woolf or Uli or Anne, right, we all owe it to ourselves when someone says, don't use that word, to pause. And to think why. Right. Like when she said that, I want to use the word lesbian, or she provided another word, like why. That becomes interesting right. because what do, I don't know what the context was. Maybe it was too medicalized. Maybe it was derogatory. Maybe she said, I don't want to be part of those people. Doesn't right. help me, and and so that pausing to think over the words. Yeah. I mean that that's something that she does all the time. Right, right, exactly. and that's a yeah. huge value for yeah, her. Right. Um, we're gonna bring this to a close. This was a fantastic conversation. It was a really fun. A, a long episode of Think About It <laughs> with Anne Fernald, who is professor at uh, Fordham. So and also the editor of the Norton Critical Edition of Mrs. Dalloway. And I would love to have you back, Anne, to talk about Three Guineas. Oh, sure. Which I think is one of her amazing texts. Um, that would be great. So Let's a, do it. A great anti-war treatise, which today's time is really interesting, what she actually says and how she weaves feminism into that. And I just want to remind our listeners, so you can find us on Instagram and think about it. Um, and Anne, if you can remind us again where you are on um, Twitter and Instagram so people can find that because you have a very active Twitter where you discuss modernist literature 
writing, teaching, all sorts of things. That's right. That's right. So I'm on Twitter and um, on Twitter at Fernham, Fernham, F-E-R-N-H-A-M. And that's my Instagram handle. My Instagram tends to be a little more cooking books and gardening, but uh, the, the, the Twitter is, is all modernism As almost all the time. Virginia Woolf, cooking books and gardening are not insignificant pursuits. In that's life. right. <laughs> that's what, one of the many things Virginia Woolf teaches us. And Natasha was here today. So thank you. Thank you so yeah, much. And um, uh, I, we will post this episode and put some references in to some of the other books by critics that you mentioned who've worked on race and modernism or other topics. Um, and we'll put your books as the references in again. So again, thank you for joining me today. Oh, it was so fun. It was a great pleasure. Thank you so thank much you. for having me.